If you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let's give our attention now to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger. Because there was no place for them in the end. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us that we might have it this day. It's been read in a language we understand, and now we look to you and ask that you would help us by giving us more than human earthly understanding, that you would give us spiritual understanding, that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things from your law. Teach us, O God, and train us. Correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake. O God, by your Spirit working in our hearts, make us more like Jesus. Be with your people, I pray, O God. And be with me, help me, your servant, protect me from error. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The older I get, the better I am able to understand and somewhat even untangle the difficult circumstances of my past. In light of God's good plan for my present and my future, I guess this is normal. Perhaps the saying is true, hindsight is twenty twenty. But when you're in the thick, when you're in the middle of hardship, you rarely, if ever, have twenty twenty vision. I certainly wasn't seeing clearly when I was 22 fresh out of college and starting my career. And the girl that I was engaged to marry refused to conform her life to God's word. Ultimately, she denied the faith. We called off the wedding. And I had to walk through a pretty dark season of guilt and shame. I also wasn't seeing clearly when just six or seven years later, I moved halfway across the country to take a new job that not only overpromised and underdelivered, 
but made me question my vocational calling altogether and even caused me to doubt my basic decision-making skills as the leader of my household. I could name other times too, times of foolishness, times of suffering, times of confusion, times of sitting still and waiting, all times when I wondered, God, what in the world are you doing? What are you doing, God? Why am I going through this right now? To where will all of this lead anyway? Those are normal questions, aren't they? Have you ever asked them? Part of human existence. Have you noticed, though, that when you do make it through to the other side, if you do, when those hard parts of your journey are finally over, when you become far enough removed from that past hardship, have you noticed that you can often look back and you can trace the hand of God faithfully leading you through it all? And you can see it, that it was for your good and for his glory. I mean, in the thick of it all, in the middle of the weeds, I had no clue that a broken engagement would pave the way for me to walk down the aisle with the woman of my dreams. Who is her? She's here this morning. So let me be clear. I'm on, I'm on record. Or that a terrible job would awaken my stubborn heart to finally answer God's call to serve him full time in pastoral ministry. Looking back now, On this side, I can clearly see how all of it happened just as God designed it to happen. If there's ever a couple caught in the whirlwind of hardship, if there's ever a couple enduring a difficult journey in this life, it was certainly Mary and Joseph, the earthly parents of Jesus, blessed by the powerful work of God's Spirit, called to care for the Messiah of Israel, the very Son of God, this young family-to-be is now being summoned by earthly rulers to take an unexpected journey to Joseph's ancestral home, to be counted, to be taxed, also that they could render to Caesar what belonged to Caesar. Even so, their hearts belong to God. And what he was doing behind the scenes, what he was doing through their circumstances would most certainly be for his glory and for the good of not only Mary and Joseph, but for the good of the whole world. In our passage this morning, seven verses familiar to anyone who has ever been to a Christmas pageant, anyone who knows the Christmas story, we are given two key contrasts. And three timely lessons that help us, God's people, today to behold God's wondrous work of providence and to embrace each and every day with newfound hope and his sovereign care for his people. So if you're taking notes this morning, we have two big points. I'll begin by drawing our attention to the two key contrasts in this text. That's our first point, two key contrasts. The first contrast is a contrast in power. It's a contrast in power. This contrast begins to unfold in these verses as Luke draws our attention. Luke the historian, he draws our attention to a man named Caesar 
Augustus. Caesar Augustus was born as Gaius Octavius. He was an emperor, and he was probably the most celebrated of all the Roman emperors. He succeeded his great uncle, who was also his adoptive father, Julius Caesar, as the leader of Rome after Julius was assassinated in 44 BC. He was famous for his defeat of Antony and Cleopatra. Octavius went on to consolidate the imperial power of Rome and was eventually awarded the title Augustus. Augustus. You know what that means? It means the supreme, the sublime, the majestic one. So powerful was this Caesar Augustus that he achieved a godlike status. You can see this demonstrated in an inscription to him, an inscription that was discovered at Halicarnassus, hails him as, quote, the savior of the whole world. The savior of the whole world. And in verse one, we see this earthly savior sending out a decree that all the world, all the Roman world, should be registered. That's a census. It's time to count the people. People are counted, and they're counted for many reasons, but chief among those reasons at this time is so that appropriate taxes could be collected. Sounds familiar, right? It was just as true then as it is today. You see the power of earthly government on full display to take advantage of earthly opportunities to seize people's earthly possessions. And this guy had a lot of earthly power. Enough to cause the whole world to go into motion. But whatever earthly power Caesar Augustus had is most certainly contrasted with the heavenly power of the divine Savior living in the womb of his mother, Mary. Little did Augustus know, or probably even care, little did he know that his decree was part of God's eternal decree. For the motion of people that was stirred about by the census had an effect. It was moving Joseph and Mary back to Joseph's ancestral home in Bethlehem. But why Bethlehem? Why this journey? Well, the text makes it clear. We've discovered it as well the past couple of weeks. Joseph is of the line of David. And for the census to take place, people had to return to their families' homes. Twice, David is mentioned in this text, Joseph has to return to David's hometown, his family hometown of Bethlehem. But Joseph didn't have to take Mary with him. He didn't have to take her with him. In fact, it was normal, excuse me, it was not normal for men to take their families with them on such journeys. Whatever's going through Joseph's mind at this point, whether he's just still in awe of the miraculous pregnancy, the nature of this pregnancy, or maybe it's fear and insecurity on his part, faith, whatever it is, whatever's going on in his head, it's most certainly in line with God's eternal and powerful plan. Whether he knows it or not. For according to Scripture... According to the prophet Micah, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, 
this baby must be born in Bethlehem. You could turn there if you want. I'll read it for you. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Messiah must come from Bethlehem. God had a plan all along. And God was at work, even in the governing authorities, to bring this plan to completion. So the first key contrast is this. God uses earthly power to serve his divine power. You see, what at first appears to be this great show of Caesar's power actually proved the supremacy of God's sovereign power over all things. The second key contrast is a contrast in welcome. This contrast unfolds when we consider the welcome Jesus receives with the welcome that he deserves. For although Jesus was indeed the son of David, he's the true Messiah of Israel, he hardly receives a royal welcome, does he? Think about it for a moment. This captivates me. Look at verse 7. What does Luke call Jesus? Mary's firstborn son. doesn't even give his name. Her firstborn son. It's true, but he's so much more than that. He's so much more than that. He's the very son of God. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's the one by whom and from whom all things were created. He's the one in whom all things hold together. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. He's the supreme ruler of everything that has breath. He's the second person of the divine eternal trinity, the only begotten son, the radiance of God's glory. This baby born in Bethlehem that night was the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, all-glorious son of God. The son of God who took on flesh to save his people from their sins. And what kind of welcome would you expect such a child to receive? What kind of welcome? Certainly not this one. For when Mary and Joseph arrive, what do they find? There's no room for them. No room in the home. No guest room, no boarding room, nothing for them. Here's the key contrast. When the Son of God came to earth, Think about this. When the very maker of the universe, in all of its vast immensity that you can't even fathom, when he came into this world, even he couldn't get a room. Remember that next time you're trying to find a room. He couldn't even get a room. So while you would expect his long-anticipated arrival to be welcomed and lauded by every person alive, he's instead consigned to a room with animals. He would come into this world through the very natural means of human childbirth. But he's going to come to parents who are weary from travel, shoved aside to a filthy floor, 
without any help from mom or a midwife. And he's going to be laid to sleep where those very animals would eat and drink. Pastor Phil Riken rightly notes, and I'll quote him, everything we know about the birth of Jesus points to obscurity, to indignity, to pain, and to rejection. He continues, one of the greatest mysteries of our universe is that when God the Son became a man, he spent his first night in a barn. So those are our two key contrasts. Contrast in power and a contrast in welcome. And while these contrasts might be ironic, they serve a greater purpose than irony. They show the mighty hand of God at work in hard and in unexpected circumstances to cultivate within his people a greater faith. Yes, even a greater hope. Hope in his sovereign and providential care for his children. And that brings us to our second major point this morning. Three timely lessons that we can learn from this contrast. This contrast in power and welcome. So we have three timely lessons. The first timely lesson comes from seeing sin for what it is. The lesson for us in this passage is seeing the depravity of sin. What the baby Jesus experienced that night in Bethlehem was only the beginning of what he would experience later in his life. He came to his people as their savior. But what did his people do? They rejected him. Though many in his day were watching and waiting for their Messiah, most were preoccupied, probably too preoccupied with their own concerns, and they're completely unaware of what God was doing right before their very eyes. And then during Jesus' earthly ministry, I mean, think about it. He was driven out of his hometown. His own family largely disowned him. Many people flocked to him, didn't they, when they heard that he could perform miracles. But what did they do when he started talking about suffering? They fled. Even the religious leaders of the day scoffed at him, rejected all of his claims, and they grew to hate him until they finally tried to do away with him altogether. You see, it wasn't just Bethlehem that didn't have room for Jesus. There would never be room for Jesus, never be enough room for Jesus. I'll quote another commentator for you, John Mormon. When he describes this, he says, quote, when Christ first came among us, we pushed him into the outhouse and we have done our best to keep him there ever since. This is what sin does. Sin rejects Jesus. Sin rejects his saving, restoring work. And these verses remind us that our sin, because we are sinners, our sin is still in the business of rejecting Jesus even today. Whether it's a hardness of heart that refuses to yield to his saving grace altogether, or a stubborn obstinance that resists his restoring forgiveness, or an ongoing reluctance to abide in him the way 
he calls us to do. Sin still keeps us in the business of not making room for Jesus. This is the first timely lesson that we learn. The second timely lesson comes from beholding the humanity of Jesus. Looking here at this passage and seeing the humanity of Jesus. I won't go into detail, but I remember vividly what happened on the day that both of my children were born. I was there. I did not pass out. I did not run away, although I was tempted. I was there. And I'm going to be honest, I'd like to forget a lot of the details of that day, but I remember them all. And when I look back on that now, 12 and 9 years later, I'm overwhelmed by a lot of it. The raw emotion, the very human nature. How about just the really cool thing that at one moment there's X number of people in the room and then there's X plus one? So all of a sudden there's a new person here. So cool. How can I forget that overwhelming joy that I encountered as they took those babies and wrapped them in swaddling cloths and laid them up on Megan's chest? The joy I felt then. I mean, that's the same experience that Joseph and Mary have. Of course, they weren't in a hospital. They didn't have the kind of care that we have today. But they're in that place, in that moment, part of our shared existence, all the way back to our first parents, Adam, part of our shared existence, when God allows us to experience that, this is what happens. The God of the universe entered into the human situation and took on all the limitations of physical existence. There he was. This is important. This should remind us that Jesus didn't save us from a distance. He didn't remain in heaven and say, I got this. Boom. No. He came as close as he possibly could. Right there. Into the arms of his earthly parents. He came right there. He sympathized with us in all of our weakness and our suffering. It was only by becoming a baby, becoming a man that Jesus could offer his body as the sacrifice for our sins. It's the only way that he could be raised bodily from the grave. It was the only way that he could ascend bodily into heaven. Those things that we put our hope and trust in. Jesus became like us so that he could save us. That's the second timely lesson that we learn. The third and final timely lesson comes from beholding the humility in our salvation. Humility in our salvation. For all the truth contained in the incarnation of Jesus, we must never forget that what happened that night, no matter how familiar you are with the details of what happened that night, please never forget that it was an act of infinite humility. You see, if Jesus had received the kind of welcome that he deserved, if he had received that, we might be tempted to think that it was some kind of honor for him to come to earth and become a man in the first place. Well, we deserve this. But that's not the case. 
It was the ultimate act of humility and condescension. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 confirms this for us. I'd appreciate it if you would turn with me there to Philippians chapter 2. I'd like to read verses 3 through 8. Philippians chapter 2, I'll read verses 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, yes, even death on a cross. Jesus did not cease being God that night in Bethlehem, but he did lay aside. Privileges and prerogatives of his deity. He left the glories of heaven. He abandoned the glories of heaven to accept the limitations of earth so that we can behold just how amazing his grace really is. Sorry for all the quotes this morning, but many people say it better than I ever could. So J.C. Ryle in his commentary on Luke says this. He says that for Jesus to become poor as the very poorest of mankind and lowly as the lowliest, this is a love that passeth knowledge. It is unspeakable and unsearchable. That's how amazing grace is. That's how amazing this love is. It's unspeakable and unsearchable. And yet Jesus did all this for us because he knew that this is how he would save us. He knew that the manger in Bethlehem pointed to the cross and it pointed to the grave. He knew that we would be saved through this humility. He knew that we would be saved by believing for sure that he humbled himself And becoming a man and dying on the cross for our sin and by rising again victorious over sin and death from the grave. His name is Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. Friends, this is how we grow to find hope, how we grow to find peace in God's sovereign providential care for us. Are you ready? The take-home application. We humble ourselves before him. We do what Paul encouraged us to do, to have this mind, the same mind that he had. We humble ourselves before him. We bow our hearts to our king. We give thanks to him for his condescension, for his humility. And we put our hope in the salvation that he brought and he continues to bring even this day. 
So no matter what unexpected journey, you find yourself traveling. What I love about this text is it calls us to look back, to look back to Bethlehem, to behold the infinitely loving God who drew near to us so that we could have life in him. And when we look back there, where must our eyes go? When we look back there, where do they end up? Up. They end up looking to where he is now, where he's in heaven, ruling and reigning over us, working in us and through us for his glory and for our good. I think that we can find that comforting especially as we go through the trials that each and every day bring. I'm not going to ask you to actually raise your hand, but just think about it. How many of you are facing trials right now? We're not going to measure them one against each other. Oh, well, not as bad as that person. No, no. What are you facing? What hardship are you enduring? What is God calling you to walk through? Sure, you can look back on them in the future, as I talked about at the beginning, and I've done that. I'm sure many of you have as well, and I'm sure you're able to say, you know what, the further I am away from that, I see God's hand faithfully leading me through. I have that hindsight. Glasses work. I have good vision to look back. But listen, the unexpected journey of Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem the unexpected journey of Jesus from heaven to earth, those stand as a reminder that even though we cannot see God's hand in each and every moment as it happens, even the hard things, it's there. Because he's there. God is there with you. If you take nothing else away from this passage, take away this truth. God is for you. If you belong to him, He is for you. So today and every day, let's take time to ensure that we're making room for Jesus in our hearts and in our lives. When we do that, we keep our eyes fixed upon him. You will find rest and you will find peace, though you may suffer because your rest and your peace won't be in your circumstances. They'll be in the God of your circumstances, the God who loves you more than you could ever imagine. Amen and amen.